In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, guys, I wrote and deleted this sermon, I think, five different times. As recently as Thursday, I sat in a coffee shop watching my cursor blink on a blank page, and I had a very quiet anxiety attack. <laughs> I thought to myself, preaching on Jesus calming the sea shouldn't be this hard. I know this story. Everybody knows this story. So why was it so hard for me to find the right words? Why was it so hard for me to preach about this text? So rather than writing the sermon, I started thinking about why it was so hard to write this sermon. And doing that felt like procrastination, which caused another quiet panic attack. And then, in the midst of that anxiety, I realized why writing this sermon was so hard. The, dif the difficulty I had wasn't so much in what to say, but in how to say it. What I wanted to say this morning is rather straightforward. I disagree with the main point of most sermons I've heard preached on this passage, but I had no idea how to say that to you. You see, almost every sermon I've heard preached about Jesus calming the sea has three basic points. It goes something like this. First, the storms of life will come against you. The storms of life, they threaten to wreck your boat and destroy you. But second, Jesus is in the boat with you, ready to rebuke those storms. Jesus is there to bring peace to you in the midst of life's storms. So third, since Jesus is in the boat with you, Christians should not be afraid. Now that sermon may sound familiar to you for good reason. I mean, everyone knows that this life is full of storms that blow up out of nowhere and threaten everything you hold dear. Every Christian has seen Jesus bring calm in the midst of storms like those. Christians know what it feels like to be strengthened by the Lord, to not be paralyzed by fear and a great moment of trial. So hear me clearly. I agree with all of those things. I testified this morning as one with firsthand knowledge that every bit of that is true. I do. But for as true as those things surely are, I do not think that those three points are at the center of this text. I do not think those three points summarize the heart of our gospel reading. And if your favorite preacher preached that exact sermon and it changed your life, I'm not telling you he was wrong, please. <laughs> I'm not telling you that all those sermons you've heard about Jesus calming the sea need to be tossed out. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there's a story in our gospel text that is deeper than the three typical points you may have heard. And that deeper story revolves around four verses at the very center of our gospel text. So if you have not yet, open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 37, and let's dive in. <clears throat> Mark chapter 4, verse 37, and it reads, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now imagine we're in a situation like this. We're on, we're on a boat, a storm blows up, and the ship starts sinking. And you look, and just over on the side, I'm laying there, asleep. Would you shout a question at me? <laughs> Probably not. You'd most likely scream something like, Hey, Bubba, get up, man. We're sinking. Get, get a bucket. <laughs> right? Now to be fair... That's basically what the disciples are shouting at Jesus, right? The disciples yell at Jesus, wake up and help us, right? Wrong. 
to see why the disciples aren't really asking Jesus a question at all, think about it like this. How many parents have asked their children the question, do you want me to come in there? <laughs> now, technically that's a question, right? But every single one of us knows this is not a real question. It's really a statement posed in the form of a question. Now, with that in mind, look at verse 38 again. It reads, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Under the veneer of this question, there is actually a statement. The disciples shout to Jesus, Don't you care that we're perishing? But what they really mean is, Jesus, you don't care about us at all. You're over there asleep, and we're over here dying. And this statement disguised as a question is the first thing I want you to see at the heart of this text. The disciples aren't really asking Jesus for help. They aren't asking Jesus to bail water or produce some miracle that gets them out of this jam. They ask Jesus exactly nothing. Instead, they accuse Jesus. They accuse him of being indifferent. They accuse him of being aloof or unconcerned and inattentive. They accuse the Savior of the whole world of being unconcerned that people are perishing around him. If you remember in our text from Pentecost, the Pharisees accused Jesus, the Son of God, of being possessed by the devil. And we said that anyone who accuses God of being possessed by the devil was about as wrong as a person could possibly be. And what I submit to you this morning is that the accusation of the disciples is every bit as wrong as that of the Pharisees. The disciples accused Jesus, the very manifestation of God's love for us, as being one who lacks love. The disciples accused Jesus, the one who came to swallow up death so that none need die, of not caring that death was claiming those around him. The disciples could not have been more wrong, and most sermons I've heard never mention it. Most sermons take the wind and the waves of this story, and they make them into some proverb about life storms. They make them into an illustration about our life's trials and tribulations. And while I think you can do that, I do not think that's the first lesson in this text. The first thing I want you to see about this text is the disciples look their friend, their teacher, the disciples look God himself in the eyes and they tell him, you don't care about us. You don't care. We're dying. And in doing so, the disciples commit outright blasphemy. Now, guys, I'm going to ask you a very uncomfortable question, so forgive me. How different are we from the disciples? In our moments of greatest fear and anxiety, when it feels as if death is knocking at our door, do we cry out to God to save us? Do we cry out for his provision and his care? Or do we hurl accusations at the heavens? Accusations that indict God for being asleep while death closes in on us. Accusations that indict God of not loving us, of not caring that we suffer. When the stressful moments of life come, do we cry out to God to save us? Or do we accuse him of being asleep at the wheel? So how might God respond to those who blame him, who accuse him of being indifferent, and callous. Well, thankfully, God has the habit of answering us much more tenderly than we deserve. Look, starting in verse 39. It reads, <clears throat> And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. For years, when I thought of Jesus, I had a picture in my mind. It was from the cover of my grandmother's family Bible. It had a picture of a very stoic Jesus, and he wasn't looking straight forward. He was kind of off and 
to the side. And for years when I imagined Jesus, I could never imagine him making eye contact with me. I, I couldn't even imagine him walking like a normal person. He just kind of hovered everywhere he went. In my imagination, Jesus lacked almost everything a human had. And it's only in the last 10 years or so that that's begun to change for me. I remember one moment in seminary when the, the robotic nature of Jesus that I had carried for so long was replaced with something more human, something that was much more real. And the moment came as we studied this very passage. In my mind, I could see the disciples screaming for Jesus to wake up, and, and their reaction to the boat sinking, it was, it was a very human one. There was fear and immediacy. There was volume. All of these things were present in their voices. But when I imagined Jesus waking up and speaking the words, peace be still, his voice was like, it was calm and it was very quiet. There was no urgency. There was no firmness. Essentially, the voice of Jesus was hardly a human voice at all. But then my professor pointed something out about this verse. He pointed out that the English translation obscures a few things that the Greek text makes clear. Our English translation has the words, peace, be still. And the Greek is fairly close to that. It's be silent or, or be still. All of those are accurate translations. But what my teacher pointed out was that the tone that's found in Greek allowed for peace be still to be translated as sit down and shut up. <laughs> now, that's no robot talking, guys. That's a, that's a very human voice. But what helped me even more was the next thing that my professor pointed out. Jesus commanded the waves and the wind to sit down and shut up. Because the untamed wildness of the sea deserved a strong rebuke from its creator and master. But the wind and the waves weren't the only thing acting untamed in the face of their master. And this is the second thing I want you to see in this text. Jesus could have shouted the word, sit down and shut up to his disciples. Jesus could have rebuked them for their wild accusations and insults. Jesus could have rebuked them from rebelling against their creator and master. But he didn't. Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves instead. I can't tell you how many times I've been overwhelmed by life. I can't tell you how many times that circumstances outside of my control and some by my own hand have set their sights of destruction upon me. And in my pain and fear, I accused God of being the architect of my suffering, accused him of being against me, of hating me, of not caring that I was suffering. And by doing this, I acted wildly, and I deserve the swift and severe rebuke of God. But what Jesus did for me instead was rescue me. What he did instead was save me from the very clutches of death. And just as he did for the disciples, he did all of it even while I doubted his goodness, even while I doubted if he loved me. Guys, this is the heart of Jesus on full display, a heart of love in patience that is directed at the rebellious hearts of men, hearts that doubt him, hearts that hurl insults at him, hearts that are in desperate need of redemption. But notice what happens next. After the sea is calmed, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them two questions. Look in verse 40. It reads, <clears throat> He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now guys, is it just me, or do those two questions seem a little disconnected? How does the question, why are you afraid, fit with the question, have you still no faith? Why does Jesus ask his disciples these two questions? Well, most sermons I've heard 
say Jesus is telling his disciples that if they would have faith, that they would not be afraid. Most sermons I've heard say that if you would have faith, then the storm wouldn't have phased them at all. They would have just been in the boat with the waves crashing over the sides and everything would have been hunky-dory. Most sermons then pivot and say a true follower of Jesus should have faith like that. A faith that's so deep and true that when life's calamities come, you register their arrival as nothing more than a blip. Most sermons I've heard, they, they seem to insinuate that our faith can be so deep that no scenario in this world troubles us in our hearts. And guys, that leaves us with a very big, big problem. It's a problem to suggest that this savage world doesn't affect those who have faith. It's a problem for a parent to remain untroubled as they bury their child. For the heart of a husband or a wife to remain untroubled as they watch their marriage fall apart as their spouse walks out the door. For the heart of any person who watches just 10 minutes of news and sees murder and hatred and falsehood enveloping the world, how on earth are we to remain untroubled? How do we square the impact that tragedy has upon us with the words of Christ, though? Jesus does seem to say that they wouldn't have been afraid if they had faith, doesn't he? But look again in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, it does appear that Jesus is saying, if they would have faith, then they would not have fear. But think about those two questions this way. Let's say I ask you these two questions. First, why are you here? Have you come to worship God? This is undeniably two grammatical questions. Why are you here? Have you come to worship God? But intuitively, you know both questions are really one seamless thought, one continuous question. What I'm really asking you is, are you here because you wish to worship God? The second question is the condition of the first. Now with that in mind, look back at our gospel text. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What Jesus is doing here is looking at the disciples, and he is asking them two questions, but with one seamless thought. What he's really asking them is, are you afraid because you have no faith? Jesus is asking them about the basis and the cause for their fear. He's asking them about the origins of their fear. He's asking them, are you afraid because you do not trust me? Jesus isn't making some universal application to Christians that they should never encounter fear or anxiety, or if they do, there's something wrong with their faith. No. Guys, later in this same book, in the book of Mark, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane himself was greatly troubled, so troubled by the circumstances that he faced that he was sweating blood and crying out to the Father to allow the cup to pass from him. But never once, never once in that prayer, Never once in his darkest hour did Jesus accuse the Father of not caring. Never once did Jesus accuse the Father of being absent or unconcerned with his plight. Guys, this world is full of terrifying things. And every single one of us have endured the pain of frightful days. And every single one of us, whether we like it or not, has more frightful days yet to come. If you find your life in a moment of tranquility and peace, then be thankful to the Lord, but suffer no delusion. 
until the Lord splits the eastern sky and descends with a shout and remakes this wild and broken world, calamity will find you. No doubt there are many this morning that find themselves firmly within the grips of a storm, a storm that threatens to tear them apart. If that's you this morning, if you feel as if you teeter on the precipice between living and dying and your fear and anxiety are at an all-time high, then let me ask you this question. Are your questions like the ones the disciples asked in the boat or like the questions Jesus asked in the garden? Are your questions faithless? Do you accuse God of not caring, of being absent from you as disaster strikes? Or... Are your questions grounded in faith? When you feel the pain and terror of the world press in upon you, is your first assumption God is with you, that he's not far from you? As you cry out in pain, asking God for his help, asking him to come to your aid, are your questions based in trust? Are they based in faith? Or are your questions for God really not questions at all? Are they just accusations? Brothers, sisters, I've done it both ways. I've reacted to calamity just like the disciples, shaking my fist at the sky and accusing God of being far away and unconcerned. I've done it the other way too. I've suffered trials with a heart of faith, a heart that was anxious and unsure about almost everything in the world, almost everything except God's goodness and his promise to never leave nor forsake me. My friends, Suffering in this world is not optional, but the heart of the one who suffers is. God offers you his assurance, his presence. God offers to you his very life. He offers himself to you. And in receiving him, you receive all that you need to endure the trials of this world. And no, there is no guarantee that this world will be kind to us. There's no guarantee that a Christian will escape suffering or that when suffering comes, it will be easy. No. The only guarantees we have is that suffering and death are not long for this world. Jesus will soon bring them to an end. And while suffering and death remain, he has promised us that we will not suffer alone. If you're struggling this morning like the disciples, if the tragedies of this world are about to undo you, please remember that God was not far from the disciples, and he's not far from you. Cry out to God in pain. Share with him your fears, but do not cry out like the disciples. Do not cry out with a heart that doubts the goodness of God. Because he loves you. God is with you, and he is for you. The Lord Jesus himself has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, and in this we can rest. Amen.